Well, good evening, everyone. And above and beyond good evening, happy opening day to one and all. This is the Metzian Podcast with Sam, Mike, and Rich. My name is Rich Barago, known on Twitter as MetFanRich and Mets Killing Me, uh, which they didn't today, and we'll get into that. But it's opening day, and if you're a baseball fan, it, it's Christmas, it's Hanukkah, it's everything. It's Kwanzaa rolled into one because it's day one of what will now be seven months of baseball. That's right. You heard it right. Other than the couple of days around the All-Star break, seven months of baseball. I, for one, am thrilled. And with that said, I'd like to bring on my co-conspirators of the Metzian podcast. So we have one of our co-conspirators, uh, the mastermind of the Metzian podcast, who is, uh, shall we say, on location somewhere in central Jersey. Sam Maxwell, how are you tonight? Well, I'm not sure if you can actually hear the turnpike going by, but uh, I, I was brought to exit 8 with a lift ride right before uh, I was set to call in. And you have to love that, this job, you know, if, if you're uh, – if, if you like seeing new areas of uh, New Jersey as well as the whole country, then uh, this job can provide that for you while you're making some money. And, and it's, uh, it's, it was golden, and I was, I was listening to uh, WCBS 880, uh, the voices of Howie Rose and Wayne Randazzo, and I just want to stay off the, off the bat. Great job by Wayne in his first major league uh, announcing next to Howie. Yeah, Wayne is good. He's on a one-year contract, and, you know, let's see how it works out. I think we're all happy for Josh Lewin, who was able to get a job with the Padres, and he does the Chargers. Now he can live full-time out in San Diego, and there's not a whole lot wrong with that. So, um, yeah, and one thing about 880, and let's not minimize this, the signal is great throughout the tri-state area. And um, and I think if the Mets are on their former home, Sam, you may not have heard the uh, – the dulcet tones of Wayne Randazzo quite so clearly. So I'm, I, for one, am thrilled that they're on 880. I was right from the minute they announced it for signal clarity and a lot of other reasons. So, all right, so with that, we'll go to our other co-conspirator of the Metzian podcast, Mr. Mike LeColent, who um, is in uh, Brighton Beach, he just said, and I wonder if he's writing his memoirs. That's actually a movie. But, um, but anyway, Mike, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. You know what? To be very honest with you, this is about as excited as I've been for an opening day. Uh, you know what? Perhaps since 2006. You know, I was excited heading into 15 and 16, but not quite as uh, excited as I was today, last night, or week. Uh, but I am well, and you are correct. I'm coming to you live from Brighton Beach today. I'll be pulling an all-nighter into the wee hours of the morning, and uh, tomorrow I'll be home sleeping. Sounds great, Mike. And we have a special guest. You really, you know, you really can't kick off baseball season without this guy. Uh, this is a voice that we've heard on the Metzian podcast many, many times. He needs no introduction, although I'll give him one here on the Metzian podcast. He really needs no introduction in Metzville. Um, we have author Greg Prince with us tonight. We're thrilled to have him. And Greg, as we go to you, uh, maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about your Faith and Fear and Flushing and your books and where people can find you and social media and all that kind of good stuff. So, Greg, welcome, and thanks for joining us on opening day, which has become opening night. Thank you. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, the, uh, the champagne is flowing. The confetti is flying. The Mets are 1-0. and Life is good, at least until Saturday afternoon, so let's enjoy that. We... Um, 
I'm at Faith and Fear and Flushing, like you said, faithandfearandflushing.com, uh, beginning its 15th season, uh, game one already uh, on our uh, site. And uh, follow me at, uh, at Greg uh, underscore Prince on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, uh, the, the pin, the tweet will lead you to uh, my books. Uh, if you're a Mets fan, I think you'll enjoy them. So uh, other than that, just uh, happy to be here. Uh, Greg, tell, please tell us the titles of the books because I've read them all, and, and if others listening have not, what, what are the names of your books? Okay. Uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing, an Intense Personal History of the New York Mets, sort, sort of a, you know, a memoir, but more like a Long Beach memoir, not a Brighton Beach memoir, uh, since <laughs> that's where I'm from originally. Uh, the Happiest Recap, 1962 to 1973, uh, some of the greatest games in Mets history. Uh, what the, what the heck was the next one called? Amazing again. Um, about the 2015 National League champions who indeed did win on opening day. And finally, Piazza, catcher, slugger, icon, star. Uh, you know, this is a story about the uh, the franchise and, uh, you know, their, their main man and, uh, you know, what it all meant to us, how it all came to be and why, why we cared so much uh, that he got into the Hall of Fame. So, uh and hope, hopefully some, some other stuff down the road. But for now, that's very nice of you to ask. And, uh, yes, if, you, if you're a Mets fan, uh, there's, some, there's something there for you. That's great. And, and they are fantastic books. Highly suggested reading for one and all. Um, so now, guys, as, as we've talked about a bit, it's opening day, and open, which has become opening night. And, and I wanted to start the show with talking about your, one of your memories, your, you know, your favorite memory of an opening day, or if you want to share a couple, that's fine too. But, but let's really revel in opening day before we get to the Mets. And Greg, since you were just speaking, I'm going to go right back to you and ask you to kick us off with, you know, share with us, if you would, a reason why a certain opening day stands out for you or, or an opening day or two. Okay. Uh, well, so, someday <laughs> I hope to say, remember 2019 in Washington? That was the best, and the season was the best, but I'll I'll, I'll hold off on that one for now. Um, the quintessential opening day of my life was when I was 12 years old, which is probably something that everybody who's been a 12-year-old and a baseball fan can relate to. Um, games started at 2 o'clock then uh, at Shea which is where this opening day took place. And we weren't let out of school. I was in sixth grade until 2.30, so it was about, I don't know, let's say 3 o'clock uh, by the time I got home. And I believe I had Hebrew school that afternoon. At around 3.30, a friend of mine was with me. You know, we took the school bus back to my neighborhood because it was close to the Hebrew school, which is a couple of blocks away. And I just had this revelation that this game was in progress, that we actually got to see the beginning of in our class because our teacher was really cool. And, uh, you know, it was uh, Tom Seaver versus Steve Carlton, the Mets versus the Phillies. Um, Dave Kingman in his first game as a Met. Joe Torrey in his first game as a Met. Tom Seaver trying to overcome his one and only so-so season of his Mets career to that point. And we were just incredibly excited. I was a Mets fan. My friend was a Mets fan. I just had this this great idea. I said, I mean, my, my, none of my parents were home, either of my parents, I should say. I, I turned to my friend Jeff, and I said, you know what? I'm not going to Hebrew school. I'm going to stay and watch the game. And you are? I said, yes, because 
I don't, I don't think I said this at the time, but I probably could have said, you know what, 44 years from now, I won't remember whatever is covered in Hebrew school, but I will remember, in case anybody asks me, how much fun it was to ditch Hebrew school and sit here and watch the first game of the 1975 season, watch Tom Seaver outduel Steve Carlton in the, in the complete game, both of them had a complete game. Dave Kingman hit his first home run. Joe Torrey driving in the uh, the first uh, run of the season. A new era, or so it felt like to me, at 12, beginning. And that's what we did. And, you know, again, it was a, uh, it was a great game. And I don't remember if there were any repercussions for me skipping Hebrew school, either at said institution or... Um, later that night, I, I may have not volunteered that information when certain people got home, but, um, you know, that's, uh, that's what I think of when I think of opening day, just, you know, you, you kind of build your whole March in this case, you know, it's still March, but, you know, February, March, you're, you're building your winter, the last part of your winter around it, you're counting down the days and it finally comes and, uh, you know, not, knock wood, you don't let anything get in your way. At least, you know, experiencing experiencing it in some ways, and I've you know been you know responsible enough uh, in my life to uh, I've had to miss some pitches on opening day, but it's always nearby in in some way, whether by TV, whether by radio, whether by app, and um, you know that that's a, I don't know that it's my quote favorite opening day, but that to me is the quintessential opening day. I think it wasn't the first one I remember, but it's kind of the one that that sort of set the standard in my mind that for why I don't want to miss the first game of the year. I don't want to miss any game of the year, quite frankly. But, um, and again, you know, there's Steve Carlton and Tom Seaver, uh, a matchup. I was thinking about it today, and I don't know if we, we've had a matchup like that on a Mets opening day, like close to that on both sides until today, for what that's worth, with Jacob DeGraw and Max Scherzer. But, um, hey, whoever's pitching, uh, you know, even even those years when it was John Meese or Dylan G or oh gosh, who whoever you know, Mike Pelfrey, whoever kind of fell through the cracks and got the ball, uh, it's always exciting. So um, I can I can name others, but I'll stop at one because you I don't know how much time we have. So um, beautiful, beautiful memory for me. I, I hope uh, I did a little bit of justice. Thank you, Greg, and and I think the story you told can probably something similar be told by a lot of fans, right? I skipped school. My dad, you know, talked my mom or my mom talked my dad into letting me out of school or I skipped Hebrew school, I skipped catechism, whatever it is, skipping that thing to to enjoy baseball. So, Greg, thank you for sharing. And, Sam, why don't we go to you now, and uh, why don't you tell us your favorite opening day memory? Well, Greg, I think after all these years, one way or, the, one way or another, you're still a mensch. So it, I don't think it's ha- haunted you that you skipped Hebrew <laughs> school, uh, to, you know, for the Mets. Uh, I have to say, I know you guys are waiting to hear from me that Colin Calgill's grand slam was my favorite Mets opening day moment, but that is surely not the case. Uh, when I think of just my tenure as a Mets fan, I've got to go to 2012 which, you know, was a bittersweet one because it was also the uh, in-memoriam for Gary Carter, and, and that was that was sad, but it was also lovely to celebrate his life, uh, especially for a fan who didn't know much about Gary Carter and, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't get a chance since I was one years old to really take in uh, what he meant for the Mets franchise. And um, it, it, it was 
uh, an amazing ceremony uh, pre-game. And then Yohan Santana was coming back from uh, having an entire year off in 2011. I think either Gary, uh, I'm sorry, I think either David Wright scored the winning run, which was one nothing, and it's another example of when it all comes together, except that had Frank Francisco closing the game, which I have a lot more faith in Edwin Diaz going forward, and the uh, it, it's, it's definitely a better acquisition than Frank Francisco ever was. But um, David Wright, you know, was about to have uh, uh, basically his last great season uh, of his career, and what we now know also is that it was Johan Santana's last great hurrah that really peaked uh, with a no-hitter. And so, you know, I, I, was, I was at opening day 2017. That was a fun one, but obviously it, it's not up there in my memory. And you have to go with 2015, the fact that I was also – that was a very important opening day. Some some opening days are more important than others, and I think we all knew that we needed to make a, a real statement at the beginning. Uh, people weren't so sure about Bartolo Colon starting uh, um, that day. That was that was quite the the choice, but it really panned out well. Uh, Henry Mejia couldn't go, so the formula was kind of thrown out the window, and Yuri's Familia uh, did not close the game, but Carlisle did. But Yuri's Familia came in in the eighth, much like he did today. And uh, things are uh, back to normal, other than, you know, we don't have Buddy Carlisle closing games now. But that, that, was, that was a very important game that I was at for that Mets franchise. And I think it really set the tone for all of 2015. So my two favorites have to be 2012 and 2015 for sure. With 2015, being, with 2015 being at Nats Park. I remember, Sam, that you went to that. And I, what I remember was it was freakishly warm that day. It was like, you know, 70 degrees or something. And, you know, the, the whole, everything you said, Bartolo, everybody was like, why are you starting Bartolo? What about, you know, this guy or that guy? But, and, and then Buddy Carlisle closing the game. Come on. But the Mets won. And it was a good omen for the rest of the season, as we know. So, Mike, let's wheel it around to Brighton Beach. Share with me or share with us. What's your opening day memory? Colin Cowgill, that was a great one, Sam. Uh, you know what, uh, Greg, I was there in 75. That was my first ever opening day. I was there for 76 as well. Uh, my father was good to me back then. Uh, but, Rich, 1984 and 2006 are two opening days in particular that really stand out, only because of the energy I brought to the game, you know, within myself. I was anticipating, you know, good, if not great things, and, uh, you know, 84 did not disappoint. And 2006, David Wright hit an, uh, a home run on opening day, so that was nice, and uh, it's a lot of fun, but my all-time favorite opening day has to be 1983, Tom Seaver's return. Uh, when he walked out of the out of the bullpen and started walking down the right field line towards the dugout, uh, you know, the roar of the crowd grew uh, as, you know, he 30, 40, 50 feet away from the bullpen and was walking down the line, and it just grew to a roar, and he tipped his cap. And to me, that was the most special day, special opening day uh, in my lifetime, 1983, Tom Seaver's return. 
Well, you guys have come up with some great ones. You know, 84, I was at that game. I was at 83-2. 84, they got smoked by the Expos. Pete Rose's first game as an Expo, if you remember that. And they absolutely got killed in that game. Uh, But the Seaver thing was great. But I'm going to go with with the year after that. I'm going to go with 2000, I'm sorry, with um, 1985, Gary Carter's first game. It was so darn cold that day, if you guys were there. Just, we were sitting under blankets in the upper deck. Just, it it was a a really good, compelling game against the Cardinals. And we all know what happened. You know, Carter walked it off. And, And you just, the energy going in was like, wow, if the Mets have that last piece, they have Gary Carter. This is great. And then, all, of all things, he hits the game-winning home run on opening day against Neil Allen. And, and it's like, wow, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And as we know, 85 didn't work out that way, um, but 86, 86 did. But that, I would say that was mine. Just the earning that, you know, that, um, that badge of courage, sitting through that freezing cold day into extra innings, to see the guy who was supposed to be the, you know, the difference between um, – the guy who was supposed to be the difference between the, the Mets finishing in second in 84 and, and bringing them to the promised land to see him, you know, do it. That was just, that was just amazing. So um, anyway, so let's move on. Let's move on to today's opening game. Okay. And let's talk about, um, let's talk about the game today. And I'm going to throw out my thoughts and then I'm going to ask you guys to, you know, comment. You can go in a different direction on today's game, but here's what I observed. It was sort of, to me, like the template as to how this team wants to win. It was a great starting pitching effort, and we all know that this team is built on starting pitching. And it then went, um, it then went to the bullpen, which has been improved, and the bullpen locked it down. Lugo was great. Familia was great. Diaz was great. Timely hitting by, of all people, Robinson Cano. Cano did what Cano is supposed to do showing his versatility as a hitter, hits a bomb to dead center field. Then he fights off a, a, a breaking ball against a lefty and muscles one into left field over the infield to drive in the insurance run. So as I saw it, and yes, I know a season is 162 games long, and we're going to live and die with each one of them, but I kind of saw today as the template for if this team is going to be successful, this is how they'll do it. With that said, let's wheel that one around. Thoughts on today's game? Is it just a one-and-done to you, or does it actually mean something more? What did you see today? Sam, let's start with you. No, I really couldn't say it's uh, better myself, honestly. I think that, you know, as we know, the Mets are 38-20 uh, and 20 after today on opening day. So, they, they, they ten, you know, they, they're 18 games over 500 when they've opened the season. And uh, some some are more important than others. Uh, we were talking about a couple of them uh, before. But I think the, the most important thing, like, you know, that separates us from, like, let's say a 2013 when Colin Cowgill hit that grand slam was that was just, you know, just a team having one of those days, 13-2, to two, you know. And, and we can get all excited and whatnot, but it's like you said, it's about the way – they put together the win. Sometimes it's just nice when the plan comes together. And that's exactly what we saw happen today with every element of, of the game. And, uh, yeah, I was thinking watching Cano out there. I mean, they, they did take on a Bryce Harper-like contract. You know, we just didn't really frame it like that. We didn't think about it like that. 
considering that their payroll, because of the way everything shuffled around, basically stayed the same. And if Robinson Cano can do what Robinson Cano does, which is, is I think, more versatile than the Bryce Harper we were talking about, when you really watch him out there, he's just really good at baseball, and he always has been really good at baseball. And if he can stay healthy, he's quite the X factor, and and he immediately proved it uh, today by being the only offensive spark, really, against the tough Scherzer pitcher that also is prone to home runs. So, you know, keep figuring out Scherzer and exactly why he keeps giving up home runs and make that your game plan for the whole year. So all the times he's striking you out don't matter as much because you got Jacob DeGrom opposite him. There you go. Um, all right, we'll go to you next, Mike. What did you think of today's game? Did you see it as, as a sign of the way they need to play or, or observations on today's game? Talk about a template, Rich. Uh, I, I don't think they could have scripted it better. You had big man on campus, Robbie Cano, big acquisition. You know, he drives in the Mets runs today. Pete Alonzo, he plays first. He's on the team. He gets his first major league hit. And then, you know, they make a defensive uh, change late in the game. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, so I, I definitely think there's a, a plan in place, and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to watch it unfold. Uh, you know, I love today's matchup. Today's matchup was just uh, spectacular. Scherzer versus DeGrom, both of them in double-digit strikeouts. But circling back to the Mets, you know, you, you look at the way they use the bullpen, Seth Lugos, three strikeouts, Familia in the eighth, Diaz in the ninth. So there, there's definitely a plan in place. Uh, I think it was uh, very evident that they're going about their business with conviction. Can't say that, can't say that about previous years, recent years. Uh, you know, I, I've been a, a major contrarian so far this offseason, and let me tell you something. This team that he put together and the attitude that he's fostering, BBW, he, he's convincing me every day. And I say that very happily. Like I say, I've been probably the biggest contrarian out there. Uh, but, man, I love being wrong. And uh, he's just – and they, they for that matter, I, you know, they're just – it's been a positive story one after the next. Sure, we, we bugged out over the last week and a half over DeGrom's contract and is Alonzo going to be on the team? Well, you know what? Uh, he showed everybody, uh, as he said in his press conference, you know, he has to – authenticate his own reputation, and, and, and that, in fact, was what was on the line. So I think today was a very good step forward, Rich. Uh, very clear plan of attack. Excellent. Greg, observations on game one of 162. No, I was nervous the first, I don't know, six innings, I guess. I was nervous for DeGrom. Not that DeGrom is someone to get nervous over, but I – figure he's got so much swirling about his head. He's got this new contract, which is going to put pressure on him, whether there's, you know, even though it gives him security, you know, there is human to want to say, okay, I'm worth it now. There's the, you know, the, the reality that it's going to be almost impossible to be as good as he was last year. And there's the fact that you know, it's opening day, which is already kind of a sensory onslaught. And that's something Jake has never had before. I mean, he's pitching the postseason. He pitched the first game on the road of, of the Mets' first postseason in nine years, so I don't want to overstate it, but, you know, there, there was a lot uh, going on. 
and I sort of expected a little bit of a letdown, and I was probably more nervous than he was for that. And the fact that, you know, he, he let some runners on base, and I began to wonder, you know, is Wilson Ramos all he is cracked up to be based on, you know, three innings or whatever, and, you know, the Nationals were running a little bit. And, you know, it was sort of actually reassuring, not not just that DeGrom winds up going six beautiful innings and, and giving up nothing, but that I could get this nervous about it on the first day of the season where, you know, I don't know what's at stake. But, no, I do know there's 161 more games, and yet, you know, I, I would say I would say I was in midseason form, except I don't think I really have a midseason form. I think I'm always like this when it comes to the Mets. And it was nice to uh, to have it kind of dissipate, that, that feeling. And certainly that, uh, you know, that, that, that double play, that sort of, Turn the tide. Oh, the Mets were already winning, but in my mind, it kind of it kind of assured me that things were going to be okay. The one where Victor Robles takes off from first doesn't take off from third base on a ground ball to third, and then he decides after the McNeil is thrown to second that he oh I, I got to make up for it now. And Cano, presence of mind, you know, super veteran, uh, you know, throws home and they get him in a rundown. And that you know again is you know the caveat that it's just one game says, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe this team is going to be all right, is going to know what it's doing. And, you know, you can't read too too far into it, but, hey, maybe, maybe the Nationals don't quite know what they're doing. Uh, you know, the, the, unlike other years, they don't loom as the only opposition in the division. But, um, you know, it, it felt good. It felt good that Scherzer could pitch as well as he did and the umpiring could be as dicey as it was because I think Conforto got screwed a couple of times on, on close calls. But, you know, Scherzer doesn't really need much help. He struck out 12. And yet, you know what? DeGrom kept being DeGrom, and Cano was Cano. It's kind of kind of um, startling to realize that Cano is actually older than David Wright. Hasn't been around as long, but he's still playing. And he does, you know, we think of, you know, David Wright. was like, you know, all the stretching he had to do and how much he could bend and, and whatever. And now, of course, you know, he, he's done. And here's Cano looking great. And by the way, again, it's two different players. I'm, I'm not, you know, c- comparing for no no reason other than this guy at 36 seems to have plenty in the tank. Certainly today he did. And if he is, as as Mike put it, the big man on campus, which I think is a great description, that he, he is kind of the, the, the leader already one game in and is going to mesh well here. You know, I'm not I'm not thrilled to welcome X Yankees to the Mets, quite frankly. Um, I'm not thrilled that Robbie Cano is wearing number 24, uh, and that they when they gave it to him, they didn't say anything about the man who did wear number 24 and the reason it's been kept out of circulation all these years. But you know what? That's that's window dressing, all that stuff. Um, Robbie Cano has come to play, and that's exciting. Jacob Degrom has come to pitch, and that's exciting. And yeah, everything you guys said about the bullpen. Um, you know, I, I've seen bullpens work incredibly well on opening day, and you get the idea that hey, you know, we've got we've got this set. Uh, I believe it was Sean Green, not not the outfielder, but the pitcher, Sean Green to JJ puts to Frankie Rodriguez on opening day 2009, ten years ago in Cincinnati. He's like, we have solved the bullpen because obviously the bullpen imploded down the stretch in 2008. It wasn't so solved, but this feels like a pretty good set of pieces, let's put it that way. We we don't know what it's going to be like when it's not, you know, one nothing and everything doesn't go right. 
But you know what? That's what the rest of the season is for finding out. So, yeah, you know, Mickey Calloway didn't do anything wrong. Nobody <laughs> Bernie Van Wagenen brought in uh, did anything wrong. Uh, Pete Alonzo, again, like, like I said, um, wonderful to see him. Wonderful that they, they didn't come up with some phony excuse to, to send him off to Syracuse. And wonderful to see him kind of recover in the course of the day from where he, he chased ball four. Again, more experienced men have chased ball four against Scherzer to get his first major league in. So, you know, just, you know, the Mets are, as we, we, we can all uh, spout the uh, statistic, uh, 38 and 12 in openers since 1970, which is amazing. Um, the fact that they've lost 12, including three in this decade, uh, is, is sort of okay in hindsight. Not okay the day it happened, but it's okay because it keeps us honest and it's the reason we can get a little nervous because we, we know that nothing is for granted and makes for a, for a nice parable for baseball fans or whatever. But um, it's nice to add to the 30, to what was 37 and now 38, not, not add to the 12. So, yeah, you couldn't ask for a better first game. And all we, all we can do now is, is wait through the dreaded off day and get to a second game. <laughs> so true. On the East Coast, we have to live with that. The day after um... – Opening day is a day off, uh, which isn't the case so much for you know, the Dome Stadium teams and the West Coast teams. But, yes, tomorrow will be a long day waiting for Saturday. So let's move to our next topic. Greg, you touched on it briefly. Um, and, you know, as I was preparing for the show and I was looking around at, at what any storyline might be, I, I saw that someone made this point. I thought it was a really good one, that Mickey Calloway managed a very good game today. Um, I didn't think about it in the moment, but when you think about it, he took DeGrom out at what I felt was exactly the right time uh, with all that DeGrom had been through this week. I think Callaway referred to that in his, in his postgame, that DeGrom has had not had a normal week with the contract thing. Um, he had gone six innings, and the pitch count, I believe, was high 80s. So I felt it was the right thing to do, so you have that. Um, the way he used the bullpen, Lugo to Familia to, um, Lugo to, Familia to Diaz. He put Dom Smith in, and, you know, I'm not a, the biggest Dom Smith fan out there, but Dom Smith worked that walk. And to keep that inning going so he can get that insurance run, he brings in Keon Broxton to run and then leaves Broxton in right field. So now the Mets have the best defensive outfield that they could put out there with Nimmo, Lagaris, and Broxton. So, and, and it just seemed like Mickey managed a really good game, and I think that's newsworthy for the following reason. I've said right along on this podcast all off season that I think Mickey has a very short leash. I think we asked the question if the Mets were 40 and 41 at the All-Star break, what do you think would happen? I think Mickey would lose his job because the expectations are high for this team and the fact that Brody has no particular allegiance to Mickey. But all that said, I thought Mickey did a great job. I'm rooting for the guy. I like the guy. Uh, so let, let's go around and ask the question, you know, did you like the lineup today? Uh, did you like the way the team looked prepared and all of that? So just reflect on, on the job Mickey Calloway did today and what that might mean. So, Mike, why don't we start with you? Practice makes perfect. You know, last year was his rookie season as manager. Uh, he was a pitching coach, and, you know, he's been around. But I, I heard on the radio explained this way, perhaps maybe the game sped up on him. And he somewhat admitted that, Callaway that is. But now with a bench coach, a National League-minded bench coach, uh, as you say, Rich, he, he 
he did a lot of maneuvering today, uh, a lot of positive maneuvering, a lot of, you know, sensible maneuvering, and it's a, it's a good sign. I, I'm with you. I don't believe Mickey Calloway is BBW's guy, uh, but he's going to respect him, and he's going to give him a fair shake. I do believe that. Uh, but if BBW had his druthers, I think he would have a different manager in place. I'm in full agreement, and I think we're all rooting for Mickey. Um, all right, so, Sam, let's go to you next on that one. What do you think of the job Mickey did today and, and going forward, what that might mean? Did we lose Sam? I'm sensing maybe we did. Um, all right, Greg, we'll go to you on this one. Uh, you know, no, no complaints. Where Mickey Calloway is concerned, Mike, you know, laid out the evidence. Um, and, yeah, practice makes perfect. They, they, well, I guess all teams that were, you know, bivouacked in uh, spring training for what seemed like forever. But the, the Mets uh, put it to good use. Um, nobody did anything wrong. I mean, again, you're going up against the second-best pitcher in the National League, so you can be excused for striking out 12 times against him. But, um, you know, lineups and things like that will, will shake out over time. So I don't read too much into that at the moment. Uh, you know, like I said, we, we got to see what, you know, we, we saw three relievers today. Um, and that, by the way, uh, which I, I wholeheartedly agree, was 93 pitches, six innings. I wouldn't say DeGrom labored, but he did have to work to get out of trouble. There was no reason uh, you know, again, later in the season, maybe when he, when he has you know some stamina built up, but six innings was perfect, and the guys behind him did not let him down. Um, I, I think we're, we're probably seeing you know some payoff again. One game, we'll, we'll just keep repeating that one game, but maybe, maybe we're seeing some payoff from Jim Riggleman sitting next to. Mickey Calloway and keeping focus on things that might have gotten by a first-year manager who was new to the National League and who didn't have a National Leaguer sitting near him, which you know, apparently it's, uh, I think as we could have guessed, it's a different experience trying to run a game where you know the lineups are a little more fluid from inning to inning, especially later in the game. But uh, they handled, he handled everything well. And, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for him. You know, again, I, I think we talked about this on a, on a previous show, how this guy, I mean, Callaway, came in very highly thought of, very highly sought after, talked about as one of, you know, the next great mind in baseball. And, you know, by May, he's mixing up the lineup and giving crazy explanations. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're losing almost every game in June. Uh, it's a new year. And, you know, if Van Wagenen culture-intensive philosophy is really taking hold, and Callaway is smart enough to to be a part of that. And, you know, that, that it's a real thing and not, not just a lot of talk that we'll forget about by May. Um, I, you know, he has a foothold. He has the job now. Uh, his team, and if his team plays well for, for more than 12 games, <laughs> which was the case last year, um, no reason he shouldn't be uh, not, not just along for the ride, but helping to steer the ride. So it's uh, it's, it's giddy times in Flushing, and they, they haven't even been to Flushing yet. They've been to Syracuse, but they haven't been to Flushing. They've been to the state of New York, but not, not the borough of yeah. Queens. So, Sam, I think according to my board, we have you back. 
your thoughts on the job Mickey did today, or Mickey in general? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, Greg stated it perfectly the first go-around with Mickey Calloway didn't do anything wrong. Uh, you know, it, 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 I, I think that I'm, I'm thinking about, it's weird, like through that, that entire conversation when I, I was on the phone, um, and what everybody was talking about, I was just kind of thinking about where we've been from 2015 to now. And I think that, you know, whether whether it's like Matt Harvey yelling at TC in, in 2015, uh, and the end of the Sandy Alderson era, you know, you, you don't do so much with what you've been given and obviously, a lot of what happened last year was the bad job that Mickey Callaway was doing. Uh, but I think a lot of it was also the players at hand and the fact that it was the perfect storm of everything, from, you know, falling apart from the, the, the tail end of the Sadie Alderson era. And, like, thinking about, like, 2015, you know, we didn't have this much of a professional team, if you will. You know, we, we had a feeling that they were going to be good. Uh, but even at its, at, at its highest, it still was one of those miracle years, if you will, you know, that unfortunately did not pan out uh, at the at the end of it. You still had your Lucas Dudas. You, you, you had to import some veterans, which they kind of have done now, except they did it before the season began instead of in the middle of the season. So... I think that Mickey Callaway not only has a year under his belt, but he also has a much more professional squad. Mike said it too about how they they, they look very uh, uh, tactical. They they look like they had a plan in place, and and that there there's there's a fire in their eyes to get this done. And I think that we've been waiting for the Mets to mature as a franchise. And while we still have a lot of criticisms about the way the owners deal with stuff and, and, and whatnot, maybe what exposes the owners is just how poorly run underneath them it is. And obviously that some obviously has everything to do with the type of people they put into place, but the owners have only been doing this for 20 years now as on their own. And even recently, we had something to criticize about Nelson Doubleday not getting a statue done during his tenure. So I think that um, you're seeing on both Mickey Calloway and the franchise's part a, a much more defined approach. And that's what I hope continues. I'm with you. Um, and so... Now that we've talked about Mickey, let's talk about another key element of winning, especially when your team is built around pitching, and that is the bullpen. Um, the bullpen has been a problem for this team for the past couple of seasons. It has been rebuilt. Some of the pieces are back. You know, Familia took a little vacation last year, and he's back. Gaselman Lugo certainly seemed to be emerging. But with the, the recreation of with adding Wilson, adding Avilon, um, and, of course, adding Edwin Diaz, let me ask this question, and I, I know I, I say this half in jest, right? It's been one game, and the bullpen was great today. But do you have a better feeling about this bullpen going forward? Because clearly the bullpen is so important in baseball. Your starter can give you seven great innings and one bad inning by the bullpen, and you lose. 
So, so Greg, we'll start with you on this. And I know you mentioned bullpen before a little bit, but if you could, just give us some thoughts on if you really think this bullpen is meant to endure the long haul. Well, uh, last year's bullpen began with A.J. Ramos and Anthony Swarzak and Jacob Rame, and no disrespect to any of those those guys who all showed flashes at various points in their career, and at, at least in Rame's case, might still. Uh, that was just kind of throwing, throwing relievers at the bullpen wall and hoping something would stick. Um, you had Familia, who had certainly, you know, put in a lot of work and had a lot of good innings over the years, but maybe had been used a little too much in the ninth. And, you know, he, he's your, your stop. You're, 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 he's the buck stops here guy. And now he's not. And he seems relaxed as a result of that. Diaz, you know, is young enough where you don't look at what he did last year as something that may have broken him. I remember when we got Frankie Rodriguez, a guy I always liked, but because I'd followed the Angels for a while, I was thinking, you know what, I think we got him a little too late here, and I, we probably did. Uh, you know, Diaz changes that equation. Uh, Lugo has just been so good, and if he, they can just leave him where he is and, and not have to pull him back and forth to the rotation, uh, you know, that that's until proven otherwise, you know, is an, another, you know, obstacle to hitters. Uh, Justin Wilson I'm not sure about. He didn't have uh, the best of springs, and he's had some control issues. But you've, you've got the other lefty in Avalon. And between the two of them, uh, hopefully something will work out. Again, bullpen looks, looks pretty good. Looks very good today. It's pretty good in general. And it's all fine and dandy until the ninth inning or an extra inning in Miami, because it always seems to be Miami. <laughs> Somebody you know loads the bases. Somebody throws a wild pitch. Somebody throws ball four, and we're saying, "Oh my God, the bullpen again!" But um, you know what? That that happens to everybody. And you know, we, we again, we'll, we'll probably have to overcome, you know, the the learned reflex to figure, "Oh my God, something terrible is going to happen." But I have to say, for for all my anxieties today on the front end of the game, I felt pretty good. I I did not believe when. You know, Lugo, then Familia, and then Diaz came in the... Certainly not Lugo, and pretty much not Familia. Diaz only because I haven't seen him as a Met yet, but I trusted him. I did not say, oh, God, you know, this is going to be one of those ninth innings. Uh, you know, we were throwing around uh, happiest opening day memories before I, I won't uh, dwell on it, but I, I, and I don't remember who... I guess it was Parnell... Yeah, because he got injured afterwards. Opening day 2014, when Andrew Brown was, was basically Colin Cowgill and hitting the uh, surprising home run. And Parnell, you know, had, had a bad arm. We didn't realize it. And then the whole thing basically fell apart from there. Um, just did that, you know, that flash through my mind, that sort of ending, that sort of opening day that, that uh, dies on you. That didn't happen today. And I don't expect that's, you know, going to be a recurring theme. Um, so, you know, they'll, I, I, get, I believe that this year is when they've, as opposed to putting it aside for next year, uh, change the disabled list rule where pitchers are no longer going on the 10 day DL. It's going to be a 15 DL day DL. So you're going to see less of the shuttling. I imagine that you had last year when Jacob rain was, was recalled nine different times. And that's not an exaggeration. And 
they just kept saying, well, you know, we'll try this guy and that guy. So maybe, you know, we, we can get some sort of consistency and people can feel a little, I, I hate to say secure in their roles because, you know, your role should be the pitch when you're needed. But uh, at the very least, if, if you know that you're not on the next flight out of town, if, if you give up a run, you, you probably pitch better. So overall, you know, I don't know that it's a strength of the team that you, you're going to go to City Field to see the Mets relief pitchers, but uh, it doesn't feel like a liability. And given where it's coming from, if it can go for, if it can go to a neutral factor, a non-liability, as you say, Greg, then that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Go from being an enormous yeah. negative to a non-liability. We'll take it um, for sure. And so, Sam, let's go to you now. Bullpen-wise, do you think you know it's one game and you know the jury's still out, or, or do you feel better about this bullpen than you have in the past? Live on location from the Lincoln Tunnel. Just needed to specify that, by the way. Uh, no, I think it's. I think you guys said exactly what makes sense. If it's a non-liability, that is much better because too many times, and I'm getting flashbacks to 2008, the bullpen has been a major liability after the you know their their best pitchers go down. Um, I I think that there's better depth right now, uh, and yeah, we're not depending on the Manny Acostas of the world. Um, Lugo and Gazelman, I think, are, are, you know, they. I can't think of the two without thinking of the other. And just because of 2016, Lugo's going to be great. And, and when Greg was talking about the extra innings, all I could think of is Lugo. You're going to put Lugo out, out there, right? Like, save Lugo for there. Uh, obviously, that might not happen if he's your seventh inning guy. But the formula seems to uh, have come together today. I was a little worried about the fact that Familia's control was off at the beginning. Uh, that's something that we should definitely monitor because he does have a tendency to just lose his his uh, sharpness. And it used to be when, you know, he wasn't in a safe situation. Now he's most usually not going to be in a safe situation. And speaking of which, uh, yeah, I had total faith in Edwin Diaz, and it was nice to – and also think about the fact that the Mets got this guy to win. They they got a young closer coming off of a, a, a breakout year. This if there's ever a sign that they actually are in it to win it, it's that move. There, you know both the Cano and the Diaz uh, move, which was the same move, uh, paid dividends today. And you you gotta you gotta remember those moments and what they were trying to do as it hopefully continues to come to fruition. You're right. That, that deal, Brody looks like a genius, at least for today, right? Cano and Diaz both, both paid multiple dividends. So, Mike, I'm going to change the mix on you a little bit, and I'm going to use a segue. We've been talking a little bit about Cano. And I'm going to ask you, Mike, to, to talk about Robinson Cano a little bit, as I will Sam and Greg. Um, Cano, you know, it, it was a – it was a controversial thing. They pick him up, oh, he's 36. You know, did he, did he uh, just rely on PEDs that he can't do anymore, and he was suspended 80 games and all that. And the Mets, you know, got, got the guy 12 years after the Yankees. The Yankees got the best of him. The Mets get the scraps, right? Um, so it was a, a bit of a controversy, and the thought was that Jerry Depoto made the Mets take Cano as the toll to get Diaz. And so 
Some people said the Mets are stuck with Cano. Five years, a lot of money. Other people said, no, the guy could still get it done, steroids or not, no PDs or not. And uh, so today, at least, we saw Robinson Cano for what he is. You know, home run, absolutely crushed, great piece of hitting, as I said before, and fighting off that pitch. Um, and then, sorry about the dog, guys. And then, um, and then what we saw on the, in the field, you know, turning that double play where he takes the throw, he gets you out at second, sees the runner break from third, fires home, and he does it effortlessly. If you watch the postgame, that's what you heard. It looks like the game is too easy for this guy. He just threw, calmly threw that ball home, threw a strike, get the runner and run down, inning over, rally over, game over, see you later. So talk to me about Robinson Cano. We're hearing that he's a great clubhouse influence. He's great with Ahmed Rosario. He's great with everybody. And we saw him do it on the field today. So your thoughts on Cano, Mike, is this a good thing that they have him, or are you still worried about the longevity of, of Cano's pr- productivity? Well, you know what? That that's a That's a personal opinion. But if we're going to be objective about this, we have to look at his record and his performance thus far, which is spring training in one game. We can look back on his career, you know, but that's, I think, where opinion may rule the day. I have to flip a switch, just like I have to flip a switch with BBW. During the off season. you know, I was skeptical. I was, skeptical. Uh, I was the contrarian. But now that the season has started and these are the guys we're going – you know, into the season with I flip the switch. So you said it perfectly. Uh, and here's a case where I think experience is the best teacher. He's a veteran now. And he's coming across as a teacher, the young guys, as you say, Rosario and a couple of others. And they're looking towards him, and he's giving them uh, positivity in return. And then on the field, uh, a savvy play at second base, getting that guy caught in a rundown. Uh, again, veteran, uh, leadership, by example. Uh, and, and, you know, they're raving about him in the clubhouse. So who am I to inject my personal opinions of the guy previous to his acquisition? Because, no, I wasn't his biggest fan. But if I'm going to be fair about this, he's been a, a model citizen thus far and we're going to have to see how this season plays out and how he continues to perform for the remainder of this contract. Will there be a tell-off? I'm sure, uh, but he looks sharp. <laughs> you know, I can't put it another way. He looks sharp. And granted, this is only day one, but uh, he's always been a performer. Uh, you know, look at the way he returned from his suspension, and uh, what did he do? He performed. You know, nobody talks about it much because it all took place in Seattle. And, you know, let's face it, not many people staying up for those games here on the East Coast. Most of the people watching Seattle games are Seattle fans. Uh, But now that he's here, yeah, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny, but he's certainly not going to carry down to the spotlight or, 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 you know, wilt in the spotlight. He's he's, He's New York let's call it New York bread. So he knows what he's getting into. He knows what it takes to get through the day here. And he knows as a veteran now, having experienced not one, but two organizations. And and let's face it, sometimes switching organizations isn't uh, the easiest thing to reconcile, especially when you want to stay where you were. 
so there's a maturity level, a, a greater maturity level that I think he's operating with today. And, again, I'll just go back to experience being a great teacher, and, and, and I think so far, well, not I think. He's been a positive influence thus far. Again, let's see how it plays out. Uh, and I don't mean uh, to end that off on any kind of uh, negative uh, any kind of negativity whatsoever. I, I see nothing but positive. And, again, I'll just have to put my previous opinions about him aside. Well, and I, I think it's something, I'm going to go to you, Greg, next on this one, but I think it's something interesting about Cano is how much Cano will give the Mets is partially a function of Cano, and it's partially a function of how the Mets use him, of the decisions they make. I fully believe that to optimize Robbie Cano, they're going to have to, him 125 games. They're going to have to give him some time off, recognizing he's 36. It may be painful to do it sometimes, but I do think a lot of what he'll give them, they are responsible for, that they have to be accountable. Uh, so, Greg, your thoughts on Robbie Cano. Is he, has he found the fountain of youth? Is he a great pickup? Is the jury still out? What's going on? Well, let's be honest. The jury is out on everybody. It's one game. <laughs> but uh, putting that aside, um, for 2019, my my sense is that this is a great acquisition for, you know, 2022, 2023, when he is still under contract. We'll see. Um, it's an excellent point about giving him some rest. Probably won't want it necessarily. He's always played uh, every day. But let's remember, we've, we've got a guy named Jed Lowry, uh, presumably, Knockwood, waiting in the wings to give you some flexibility in the infield between Lowry and McNeil. McNeil, by the way, I thought played a hell of a game at third base today. Uh, you know, you ha- will have options at second base, guys you can trust. So, you know, you, you don't have to run Cano into the ground. Uh, on the other hand, if he is perhaps your best hitter, you know, you don't want to be without him for too long. I, I think it'll be interesting in the context of Cano, see what Alonzo becomes this year. It's one of the things that kind of bugs me, or at least gives me pause, I should say, for this team this year, is the fact that there there is no, let's call it, UNS Espinus in this lineup. There's nobody who you can kind of pencil in 35 home runs for the full season. Uh, Alonzo, maybe. Maybe he's your power hitter. We know, we know Conforto is capable, and certainly their guys, you know, good for 20 home runs. And again, if you have a have seven guys hitting 20 home runs, uh, you know, however it translates in this age with, with uh, you know, launch angles and whatever, um, that's pretty good. And there are other ways to score runs, of course, but, you know, you, you would love that one guy they're afraid to pitch to. And if Alonzo becomes that, you feel a little better about giving Cano that extra day off. And I think, you know, you have to do it anyway because, he is 36. He is David Wright's age. Um, players, with a few exceptions in, in this era, uh, you know, don't have some sort of fall-off at this age. But, um, you know, the guy who brought him here vouched for him. And, you know, he was, you know, his agent. Uh, now he's his general manager. And, you know, again, the, the big picture has, has yet to unfold. We were having this... We were doing this show in a time machine on the, the night of 
I believe it was April 7th, 1992. We'd be going on about what a genius Al Harrison is and what a fantastic acquisition Bobby Bonilla was because he just had two home runs and the Mets beat the Cardinals. So, you know, let's, you know, just take it one one day at a time. But having said that, I will sort of contradict and say, you know, Van Wagenen has, has been very confident. I know some have referred to him as maybe cocky or you know, kind of a uh, a guy who loves to be in the middle of things and get attention, but you know, he he seems to have a plan for this organization, and you know, one large attitude adjustment where he hopes that you know, cynicism and skepticism aren't the the, the, the default conclusions that Nets fans and Nets employees and Nets players come to. So, I think Cano is a big part of that, and. You do want to be cynical. It's not skeptical. You could say, well, you know what? Cano is, is great this year, and they do great this year. Uh, Van Wagen isn't. It will reap the benefits now. And, you know, if they're not great, well, he won't be around when Cano's contract is running out. So, um, you know, they're, 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 it, it's a very it's a very fascinating uh, template. That we're, that we're trying to figure out uh, that, that's being put together here, a uh, canvas on, on, on which uh, m- much has yet to be painted. But uh, it, it's very encouraging. I'm not, put it this way, I'm not sorry he's here. I'm not sorry Robbie Cano is here. I just called him Robbie. I've never called him Robbie. He's just, you know, some annoying Yankee in my mind, you know, when he's been with Seattle. Or, you know, he's been a stranger, as, you know, Mike said that, about staying up late to watch games from Seattle. I, I know, thanks to the magic of Twitter, that both, both Mike and I stayed up late to watch the Nets in Portland the other night, a double overtime loss. So I, don't know how anybody, I don't know how anybody would stay up to watch baseball from the Northwest every night. <laughs> That's well, just an aside. I speak for myself. I'm one of those guys who stays up and watches those uh, West Coast games. You know. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I do have those. I do have those nocturnal instincts, but. Uh, well, when, once I'm done with the Mets, uh, you know, to, you know, when, when they play the 90-100 games, I, I may not have quite the interest in what's going on in Seattle, but I, I applaud that you guys do. But um, you know, if if this is if this is who Robbie Cano still is, uh, you know, we're we're doing okay. We're we're getting. I I like this is something I really like, even though we usually get them past their prime. These and then in a way, it, it's not. It's unavoidable that it's past their prime because when you get a superstar, it's already established. It's sort of implicit. He's had his prime, <laughs> and you're you're sort of getting you know whatever's left, and then the gentle or not so gentle decline. But over the years, certainly since we've been doing Faith and Fear, I've watched Pedro Martinez, and although it did not end well, Tom Clavin and Gary Sheffield, to a lesser extent Curtis Granderson, uh, maybe Carlos Delgado. Uh, although I think he was a little had a little more left when he got here. Um, even when those guys are kind of going on fumes a little, you see what made them great, and you know you, you read about how others on the team, the younger guys, are learning from them. Fully, you know, all, all for the positive. Um, Cologne is you know another example of that. Although you know Cologne was kind of a, 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 a one man league in that regard, but I, I, I get that vibe from Cano that even if he is not at his peak, um, he's got a lot to give. Uh, again, you know I think the only reason it's even up for debate 
is that it's a long contract still, and it's, you know, again, I don't know what to say about the money because look what they did. You know, I don't know what to make of money in baseball anymore other than ticket prices aren't coming down to City Field regardless. So let's put that aside. Uh, the commitment, uh, you know what, they, they took on his commitment. They know what they were getting into. Yeah, they, they took him so they could have the gateway to Edwin Diaz, so maybe these things balance out. But um, I feel good about him, and it's nice to – I would love for it to work out, not only because I would love for it to work out as a Mets fan, I would love for Robbie Cano to work out as a Met because I don't want to hear the automatic, and we all do it. I know I've done it. Hey, well, remember Carlos Baega? Hey, remember Robbie Alomar? Well, obviously, any second baseman you get to the American League who's, who's kind of been around is going to implode because it's happened before. And I think, you know, we all love citing precedents because it's what we've lived with, but they're all individuals. And, you know, maybe this is what Brody Van Wagen is talking about and, you know, kind of getting the, the whole Met universe to kind of look at things on the brighter side. Which, you know, play a 2 nothing win over Max Scherzer and the Nationals will do. So uh, I'm officially rambling. I will stop now. <laughs> well, Greg, it's okay for you to call him Robbie, because I did today, too. But just don't say Robbie Cano, don't you know? Well, that, we have to draw the line there. I, yeah, we yeah, yeah, I, I agree it with took you, me like I three years to refer to Curtis Granderson as Grandy, because I just associated that with John Sterling and the Grandy <laughs> Man can and all of that. So, yeah, that don't you know thing is verboten uh, on my lips and on my blog and any, any form of communication. So th- thank you for making that clear. <laughs> Good man there, Greg. I like it. All right, Sam, what do you think of Robbie Cano? So, so talk to me about Robbie. Do we have some good years of, of Mr. Cano left or flash in the pan he's going to burn out? What do you think? No, I, I think that if there was ever a player that could potentially uh, carry this onward, you know, you're talking about, one of the reasons why he makes it look so easy is because he's such a good athlete. <clears throat> so I do have a lot of faith that Robbie, Robbie Cano uh, will continue this. I, I can't tell you whether it's going to be till 2023. Um, and it was just really funny hearing those years and thinking about how we're still going to have Cano because it not only like made me think about the fact that we're still going to have Robbie Cano, but just made me think about the fact that like we're kind of, we're there you know, 2023, it's like weirdly right around the corner, even if it sounds so far away still. But um, I think that, uh, you know, specifically with with Cano, I really I do like the camaraderie when, when it's coming to Ahmed Rosario. And we all had our love affair with Jose Reyes at some point. But I think at the tail end there, he wasn't the best guy to be leading this new hopefully budding superstar into the the promised land and uh cano at age 36 um as much as we love jose reyes has been an overall better player uh and and there does seem to be a professionalism that he's going about that um didn't didn't always come up in when talking about Jose Reyes, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of want to watch my words because Jose Reyes, let's, let's, you know, let's remember he's one of the best players the Mets have ever had, and he would works his ass off every moment that he's ever been a Met, including the last few years. So 
But I, 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 without taking away from from that, I really enjoy. I really appreciate specifically what Cano could mean for Ahmed Rosario. Well, I think you're absolutely right on that. I mean, what I hear, you know, Keith talks about it. Cano is a leader in the clubhouse, but he's a particular leader for Ahmed Rosario. And and I know my opinion on Ahmed Rosario is I think we're looking at a superstar in the making. I, I really do. And um, and I think Cano can help him get there. So, all right. So we've talked about opening day, our own memories. We've talked about today's game. We've talked about the bullpen and Mickey Calloway and Robbie Cano. Let's talk about some off-the-field matters with the New York Mets. And there's really only one thing that pops to mind, and that is the DeGrom contract extension. Mike, I, I know I've gone to you first on the last couple of questions. I need to go to you first again because you could kind of set the tone here. Um, DeGrom, okay, let, let's back up just a couple of weeks. Everybody, quote everybody, is signing their players' long-term extensions. The Mets haven't gotten it done. Typical Mets, blah, 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 blah. And the sky is falling. Well, okay. Now, they signed DeGrom for five years, 137.5, which is certainly average for these days for a superstar. Um, he, he didn't exactly break the bank. He got the no-trade clause, and he has the opt-out after, I believe, 2021. Um, but what I find interesting about the contract, Mike, and this is where I want to turn it to you, is the financial arrangements of it, that the big dollars kick in in 2021 which is after the expiration of the Cespedes contract, when the only big contract I'll have on the books, other than DeGrom's, would be Cano's. So, Mike, I know you do a lot of research, and you've written a lot on your blog about the Mets' finances and how they go about it. So give me your thoughts, please, on the DeGrom extension, the way it's structured, you know, to be after the, um, after the big money comes off the books in a couple of years. What were your thoughts on, on, the, on the DeGrom extension and how it played out? I like it. I like the deal. I like uh, the money. I'm, I'm copacetic with the the length. Uh, I'm happy for DeGrom. I'm happy for the Mets. I'm happy for Mets fans. Uh, in that respect, you know, uh, I'm very pleased that they finally got that done. Uh, otherwise, you know, BVW potentially, you know, ran the risk of looking like a hypocrite after all his, you know, uh, bravado during the off season, uh, money wise, you know that's a, a separate issue, and I, I don't want to sour the moment, but yeah, uh, this is that three card monkey that they've been playing for a long time, and this is a, a, an ownership issue, where you know they bring in, you know they they bring in and out different bodies, but they're just doling out the same dollars. It's just the different people, and this is no different. Uh, the money's somewhat backloaded, and the big dollars don't kick in until Cespedes comes off the books. DeGrom will be making $7 million this year. Uh, he's getting a $10 million signing bonus. And, you know, just a, a, more, a little bit more of a humorous uh, factoid is that his deferred money, those payments kick in when Bobby Bonilla's money finally come off the books as well. <laughs> so it's just you know funny sometimes how look everyone's got to balance their checkbook you know and sometimes you find new and creative ways to go about that uh, sometimes you bite the bullet you know sometimes you get in the bo- in the block 
So, but with respect to the Mets finances, payroll doesn't change much, if at all. Uh, it's been relatively stable for the last three years. Uh, so I got to just give Brody credit for uh, just a, a very creative and, you know, let's just say productive off season and let's credit him for getting this done. And, and I do think he's in ownership's ear more so uh, than Sandy Alderson ever was. I, I think uh, BBW might be pointing out things to ownership that they just don't want to hear. And, you know, Jeff seems on board to be at least willing to change that perception uh, through BVW. I don't think Jeff would have this much confidence in anybody else. Uh, and the thing behind that is both of them had a personal relationship uh, for some time. They're friends. And that's why I was somewhat skeptical when they hired him. So I know I've strayed a little bit, but money-wise, we still have an issue. It's just that Brody's winning the day, and he's he's changing the conversation, and he's creating a new narrative. So, good. Let's continue to see how much more he can uh, get ownership to, uh, what, change 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 their standard operating procedures and, you know, uh, be more, be more open to, uh, new ways of doing business, i.e. BVW's way, which seems, you know, he's doing before he's known about his job with conviction and he seems to, uh, leave no stone unturned. Good characteristic. So Sam, let's go to you on this one. Um, the DeGrom extension, is it one of those things where it's like, oh, thank God, after all this time, you throw your arms up? Or do you think it really does send a good message to the fan base that it, it wasn't reactive to what other teams are doing? What, what were your thoughts on the DeGrom extension? I think Major League Baseball forced the Wilpon fans. I think uh, the fans forced the Wilpon fans. I think BBW forced the Wilpon fans. And I think Noah Syndergaard forced the Wilpon fans. There was no way they could not get the deal done after that perfect storm for them came together in those last few days. I mean, you know, not only did you have Senator calling them out for, for the, the ground non-contract at the time, but they also, the equipment budget <laughs> became a story. So, you know, all of a sudden they're like, God, geez, we, we have to take care of this, and we have to take care of this in a much according to the reports of, of them, quote-unquote, lowballing Jacob, uh, we have to take care of this in more of a likable fashion to Jacob DeGrom. So, and is, is, that re, is that for real, that the deferred payments for this contract don't start until 2032 after Fania is off the books, Mike? Yeah, one of uh, the more credible people on Twitter, I read that on their timeline. Well, that is... That, that is the comedy of errors as, as it keeps unfolding out. But in the same breath, take it for what, you know, take it at face value. I read it on Twitter. Right. But it did come well, from one of the more reputable timelines. Well, it's good. It, 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 it's a good way you put it, though. It's just BBW is getting creative with the Wilpons, with what the Wilpons have set forth for him. And 
I think that there's a middle ground to be had where, you know, basically I think BBW will end up winning out more the more successful he becomes and the more successful he makes the Wilpon. So that's that's what I think about with, with everything we've talked about with Jacob DeGrom. I think it was <clears throat> you had to get it done, and they got it done. And and right now, you know, it kind of look, – look what winning – uh, does to just make you stop talking about how awful the Wilpons are. Well, they they should be credited for not manipulating Alonzo's playing, uh, you know, playing time, starting his clock, and, yeah. and, and things yeah. of that nature, and for getting this done. Because the fact of the matter is they didn't have to get get it done. Uh, and in, in a business sense, uh, you know, they could have waited another year, you know, if they really wanted to. And business-wise, who's going to argue with that? We're just being emotional about it because DeGrom and our Saw Young pitcher and our ace and things of that nature. But business-wise, right. our move but would this, have been to hold out. Was, but this is also a business move, what they what they did, too. I mean, yeah. you know, look at all the smiles of Jacob DeGrom, Jacob DeGrom, Jeff Wolfon, and BBW in that video. And it's just so funny to me to think about it. It's just like, it, like how you have to, like, separate business and personal and that you can't be like, what, what is, you were trying to give me three years last, like a couple of days ago. What's wrong with you? It's just, it's so amazing to me, you know, how, how money can make uh, the smiles come our way. Well, I, I think how BBW might've convinced them as well that, look, if you spend a little bit, you know, the fans are going to meet you halfway. This contract alone is going to, you know, uh, inspire a couple of people just to walk up you know, and, and see a game. Exactly. That's business. Exactly. That's business. Yep. Well, and I think that's an interesting take you had there, Sam, and I, I think I'll, probably half the fan base feels like you do, and we'll go to Greg on it next, is that, you know, they kind of, the Wolf Ponds were kind of um, kicking and screaming all the way to the negotiating table to get this done at this point where they still had them for two more years. And, um, I think half the fan base feels like you do. The other half might feel like, well, maybe they could have waited another year because I, I hate to say these words, fellas, I'm going to say them. What if something happens to his arm this year? Then, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about it. You know, let, let's give him another year to see. Um, so, but I do think a fair amount of the fan base thinks like you, Sam, which is, you know, it took the idiot Wilpons, quote unquote, idiot Wilpons, this long to realize that, hey, this is what's happening in baseball. Cindergaard, you know, chipped in on it. Brody probably was in their ear. So, Greg, where are you on it? Do you think it was a good strategic baseball move? Do you think they could have waited a little bit longer? Do you think they were peer pressured into it? What do you think happened with the DeGrom thing? Well, I think it was a whole melange of factors that, that everybody here has cited. I, I just know that when it's, it's – I was going to say, when it's all said and done, it is all said and done. He is signed. He is here. I don't think there's a single Mets fan who wanted to wake up to the day, whether it was, you know, toward a trade deadline or an off season via trade because, oh, we can't resign him or because of free agency. That Jacob deGrom wasn't a New York Met. That Jacob deGrom was standing at a press conference holding up a you-fill-in-the-blank jersey. And even if it was the most innocuous American League team that we don't care about, it would have killed us. Um, maybe not literally, but but spiritually. Uh, you know, Tom Seaver never should have worn anything but a Mets uniform. Doc Gooden never should have worn anything but a Mets uniform. We don't have too many of those guys. 
And now, although, you know, his career might last long enough where situations will change and, and we don't know what the uh, theoretical 11th, 12th, 13th season of Jacob deGrom's career will be, we have a pretty good chance of never having to look at Jacob deGrom in any uniform except a Mets uniform, which is such a welcome, shall we say non-sight. I was going to say a welcome sight. It's a welcome sight to know, to project, to close our eyes and say, you know what, it's it's 2023 or one of those those crazy years off in the future, which will, will be here before we know it. And Jacob deGrom is still wearing number 48 for the Mets and hopefully still pitching competitively and helping the Mets win. And the, the funny thing is that, you know, this was all up for grabs, what, 72 hours ago? When did they get this done on Tuesday? Um, but yeah, that was the day they were flying from, you know, from uh, Sarasota to Syracuse and everything. Uh, or, or, yeah, no, they were, I guess, arrived in Syracuse. And, and the word was coming out about how uh, they were delayed in Sarasota. I mean, it almost feels like there's been a demarcation. That was, that was the old Mets. That was the laughable. We can't trust these Mets. The Wilpons don't know what the hell they're doing. They're going to let Degrom get away. Degrom's going to, you know, want to preserve his arm. It's just going to be you know, one embarrassing or at least depressing back page after other two. Hey, everything's fine. We have Jacob Degrom. He's not only starting opening day, he's probably going to start opening day for the next several years. Um, it's a nice place to be this this side of of the uh, of the mark of delineation. So now that it's done, it doesn't feel like it could have been any other way. If they hadn't done it, and you know they just kind of went about business being business and hey you know we don't have to sign him we have him under team control for two years you know we would have we would have lived with that but it would have just kind of you know been hanging over our heads uh i think the difference between that press conference during which jacob didn't rule out like wanting to limit his innings and now is that and i gotta hate calling it the industry but the industry kind of moved and, and we've seen so many of these extensions, and we saw what free agency was like, and whether that's you know some sort of light collusion, or it's just gee, we we all decided that we don't want to sign uh, anybody else's star players, but we will sign our own. Um, we're in a just you know, a different era almost. It feels like, uh, even though it's just you know late March 2019 as opposed to early February 2019. So. You know, it, it made too much sense not to get this done. Um, yeah, and, you know, it carries with it, uh, you know, risks and ramifications and all of that. But, you know, if you're going to be a Mets fan, if you're going to be a Mets owner, you're going to be the Mets general manager, you have anything to do where you where you care about this franchise succeeding and they, they give you any sort of pleasure, I don't see how you couldn't not want this to happen on, in some format. And... This format, given what he's accomplished to date, given how much he has pitched in his career, which is you know not as much as his age would indicate, because we we know that he he missed time early in his career and has, hasn't had any major issues since then. I don't see how you can't do it. So yeah, the Mets did the right thing. And again, a, a proven a proven commodity, not like let's get Robinson Cano. Where we even even someone who has proven as he is, we're okay. We're just not sure if he's going to have this for that much longer. Um, you know, 
I, I was saying earlier about watching the all-time greats sort of still be have have at least in form, if not in full substance, the the style or or the know-how that made them great. We've got that with Degrom. We're gonna we're gonna benefit from it without him coming to us from somewhere else. Uh, and again, this is this looms really in my mind. Not 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 to exaggerate, and certainly not to take his legacy lightly. But imagine you know, Tom Seaver pitching for the Mets, putting aside how bad those years were. Tom Seaver of the 1978, 79, 80, 81 Mets. He doesn't leave. He's always a Mets, uh, the way he should have been. This is what this feels like. So uh, I and, – and the fact that he's coming off a great season, the fact that he's had nothing but very good to great seasons, and that there's no reason to think he, he's going to fall off a cliff. So, you know, other, other than accidentally uh, stepping in front of God knows what, I am just thrilled that it's done. And it's funny that we're, to me, it's, it's funny that you, you brought it up as an issue because yeah, two, three, four days ago, I would have said, yes, it's a big issue. Now it just feels like it's, it's taken care of and he's where he's supposed to be. And I look forward to continuing to root for him. I think we, yeah, I think that's a sentiment we all have and it's great to have him locked up. And, and it's like, it's sort of like having that, bad aura over you, right? And you're able to push it away and it's gone now. And I can just focus on, on the job at hand because the DeGrom thing, it, it just wouldn't go away. It's, you know, all that talk last summer about trading to the Yankees and blah, 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 blah. And he's going to limit his innings. You know, you alluded to that, Greg, and all that, that mind clutter, you know, um, is finally gone. And, and, and we can just say you great analogy with Seaver, like we should have been able to say with Seaver, that this is our guy, he's going to be our guy every fifth day, and let's just go forward and, and get the job done and not worry about this rhetoric. So, um, all right, so, so that's it on DeGrom. And, and two more things to do, guys. One more question, then we'll do our last word. So, all right, we all feel really good about the Mets. They won today, Brody's great, you know, and, and Cano looks good, and Edwin Diaz looks good. But, but let's, let's poke at it and say, should the Mets be done? in terms of improving this team. And I have one thing in mind in particular. Dallas Keuchel is still out there. As far as I'm concerned, Dallas Keuchel is better than Jason Vargas. And, yes, I know Vargas had a good second half and a decent spring until he started getting shelled later in the spring. So my question to you all is, do the Mets sit on their laurels here? Not not what you want to do, but what do you think they'll do? Do they say, okay, look, let's let this season play out a little bit? Or do they say, you know what, we may really have something here. There's a guy out there, I think it's Keuchel, maybe it's somebody else, who could really help us, somebody who's unsigned to this point. Let's not let it lie here. Let's keep trying to make ourselves better to, to get over the hump and to win this division. So what do you think they're going to do? Do you think there's any chance that they throw Keuchel a one-year deal? I mean, the guy's looking for work. Um, and I believe he's an upgrade. So, so Sam, let's start with you on that. Let's start with you on the should the Mets uh, stand pat? Do you think they'll stand pat, or do you think they'll go out there and do something early on while these guys are still available? I don't see it happening. Um, it would be interesting if you were just like, hey, you know, one-year deal, what, what's, what's the risk here? I mean, we were just talking about the risk-reward balance that, that the Wilpons need to generally do when it comes to some of these acquisitions. And that would, I think, the reward would be substantially higher than, than the risk when it comes to somebody with a track record like Dallas Keuchel. And I don't think they're going to do it. Um, but, 
you know, what what else can I say? I I, I don't think it's going to be the most devastating thing for us, but I think it would send shockwaves throughout all of baseball, let alone the National League well, I think it would. I think it would be a way to put the flag, like Neil Armstrong, man, put the flag down and say, "Look, we want to win this thing. We went out and we got this guy. We got a. We got a guy who's better than what we have because we're serious." I think the fans would love it. Um, no, I don't think they'll do it, Greg. What do you think? I don't think they'll do it either because I, I don't know what's going on with Keiko. I don't understand, even in this bizarre atmosphere, how somebody hasn't thrown him a, a, an offer to his liking. Um, it'd be great. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, they may want to see if they can get by with Jason Vargas. I mean, getting by with Jason Vargas, which sounds like a terrible lifetime movie or something. Uh, <laughs> it's not uh, to borrow a phrase, to, to borrow a phrase from Noah Syndergaard. It's not what championship teams do. But again, I you know maybe there is something about Jason Vargas other than the fact that they already signed him that they like that they they like the uh, the, the the veteran presence they they like uh, the the change that his his repertoire represents versus the younger harder throwing guys. Dave Island knows him as well as anybody could possibly know him and and presumably trusts him. But, yeah, you've got this relatively recent Cy Young winner just sitting there. Um, maybe they, they, feel, they would have to feel that, boy, like, you know, we are, we are really living up to the hype internally, not only the internal hype, but, you know, what, what we've been trying to sell. And, boy, if we just had this one, one guy, you know, we, the pitching equivalent of, of Ioannis Cespedes, shall we, you know, loosely say, I don't want to put too much pressure on anybody, Maybe then they make the move. It's hard to believe though that somebody else, you know, wouldn't grab him by now. But he, they haven't. So uh, no, I'm, I'm trying to understand that uh, if, even though, as you say, uh, Rich, it makes too much sense. Uh, it just doesn't seem like something they're dying to do. Uh, you know, t- time will tell if it's something that they ought to do. But uh, I'd love for them to investigate. Maybe they've investigated and decided he's not for them. I don't know. And it's it's the defensive side of it too, right? You know, you, like you said, Greg, you pick him up before somebody else does. I just I'm, I'm watching the Red Sox game, and the scroll on the bottom of ESPN talks about how the Braves' pitching is so injured right now. Hello, I mean, why have the Braves signed this guy? Um, and why maybe the Mets could do like Noah said, do what championship teams do, if I could paraphrase him, and say, look. We don't want our rivals to get this guy, so we're going to go out and sign him, right? And he's an upgrade over Vargas, keeps away from the Braves, keeps away from the Nats and the Phillies. I don't know. It just it makes a lot of sense, and I think there's absolutely no chance of it happening, which is a bit disturbing. So, Mike, what do you think? I think a lot of the Keiko situation is being driven by analytic, analytics. He's not a power pitcher. Uh, you know, and analytics – they focus in on spin rate and velocity, and they, you know, it steers. I think it steers general managers away from the craftsmen in life, the crafty pitchers. Uh, you know, think back to Bobby Ojeda. He was a craftsman. By no means was he a power pitcher like Doc. And I think the anal- today's analytics are steering general managers away from the craftsmen. 
at the same time, you know, there's also something to be said for players lowering their price. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and, and you know, you don't know, right? And and don't you wish you did know? Like, if did Keuchel turn down ten million for a year? Did he even get an offer like that? It's hard to know, you know, what these guys where they value themselves because we're just not privy to those conversations. So, all right, men, um, we are down by the clock to about ninety seconds left. It's time to bring it home with our last word. I think uh, we all know how that works. So. So, Mike, um, I will start with you uh, before we let you get back to your work night. So, uh, so what is your last word for opening night of baseball season 2019? Woohoo! <laughs> That's my word. Woohoo! I'm happy. You know, like I said, Rich, I'm flipping the switch. You know, so I went from contrarian and uh, you know questioning everything, and now that the season started, I'm all in. And I think uh, there's a nice plan in place. I think. Brody uh, has brought in some players. Uh, he's brought a new attitude, and he's writing a new narrative, and, uh, you know, people are buying in. And Man, I, he, he's convincing me. He's done nothing but convince me every step of the way. Uh, and, and now that here we are, opening day and the season's underway, I, you know, I have to uh, step back and now enjoy the ride, as opposed to being so damn critical all the time. So, so to those who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you you'll know that Mike is not easy to convince. So Mike is con- Mike is becoming convinced in Brody. I love to hear it because I'm a big Brody fan. <laughs> All right, Greg, we'll go to you next. What is your last word on on opening night of baseball 2019? Uh, my last word is a word of remembrance for somebody who. Should be should have been covering it in some form uh, or substance, uh, and unfortunately it wasn't today. It was Marty Noble, uh, the absolute great writer, uh, who many may know from MLB.com, from Newsday, from the Bergen Record. Uh, it's a guy who covered baseball for almost 50 years, and it showed in everything he did, especially in later years, because he really was the institutional memory of New York baseball, especially Mets baseball, uh, you know, never stopped covering or at least writing about it like a fan. I don't mean in, in sort of the, you know, oh, boy, I want this team to win way, but just this appreciation for, you know, what made baseball so much fun and all the little things we obsess on, a lot of things that we kind of take for granted now because we have so many fans who have, platforms and, uh, you know, who were, you know, going to write about or tweet about or whatever, uh, you know, whatever whatever strikes our fancy. Um, It just seemed like Noble kind of went on his own way when it came to the things he brought to his coverage of the Mets through the years. I, I remember in the summer of 1986, he did two stories for Newsday that stayed with me. I think they influenced me, whether I realized it or not. One was talking to the players on the team saying, you know what, guys, this uh, is a great year, but last year, 1985, was so exciting every day. You know, you you and the Cardinals are, you know, we're neck and neck, and you you can never take your eyes off it. This year, it's kind of a breeze. Does that sort of take away from it? And I kind of remember thinking the same thing at the time, and nobody else was writing about this. 
And he got the players on record saying, yeah, last year it was more interesting. This year we're kind of bored, which I, I thought was fascinating. That same year, he, because he'd been around so long, because he was so familiar with the personnel who had come and gone, he said, you know, hey, you know, all those terrible years the Mets had until they got good in 84, you know, some of you guys played with those guys who are no longer here. Who do you wish was here to, to enjoy this with you? And it, and it was really telling. A lot of guys, you know, I, I remember the name Ron Gardenhire came up and Kelvin Chapman came up. And, you know, me as a fan, I'm like, you know, who needs them? You know, we're doing great. But, you know, it was just a different way of looking at it. I, and I remember Marty Noble kind of sending a message when he, he said, nobody said Tom Seaver or Mark Bradley. Now, Tom Seaver is Tom Seaver. Mark Bradley was, you know, a, a utility outfielder who kind of came and went in 1983 but you knew Noble knew something about these guys and the way they were received in the clubhouse. And I mentioned the Seaver thing because, you know, you bring it all the way to 2019 and what we know about Tom Seaver today and what I hope everybody has, has read and, and certainly definitely should uh, go to murraychast.com. I know Murray Chass has kind of a reputation uh, for, for, for being kind of prickly, but Murray Chass did a mitzvah uh, for, for Mets fans everywhere because he gave a platform to Marty Noble, was no longer with MLB.com at the end, to write you know, just a beautiful and revealing remembrance of his almost 50-year relationship with Tom Seaver, you know, on the heels of Tom Seaver you know, and his family you know, announcing that he has dementia and you know, is withdrawing from public life. And Noble you know, gave it all to us, you know, what made Seaver not, not just a great pitcher, made him a fascinating human being where he wasn't always – you know, the, the, the chummiest of guys and how maybe, you know, the, the, with, with their relationship sort of an allegory, how Seaver kind of kind of changed over the years and became more approachable and kind of kind of threw in an anecdote about how he wasn't the most beloved guy by the young players when he had his second and kind of, you know, shall we say truncated tenure in 1983. And then, you know, that, that ran on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, and on March 24th, we find out that Marty Noble has died, uh, which was just so sad. He's sad anyway. He's sad if anybody dies. Uh, I felt very sad for his family, for his friends, people in baseball who knew him, and he seemed to know everybody. But um, I felt bad for me, not because I knew him. I, I met him a couple of times. Uh, uh, some, some of you, you may know that many years ago, uh, me and John Springer, who does Mets by the Numbers, uh, co-hosted these events like every month for a couple of years. Uh, we'd bring in various writers, other bloggers, things like that. Well, John got Marty Noble to come and talk more or less off the record. I mean, it wasn't anything official. Some of it was written about by, by some of my fellow bloggers. But it was just it was just Marty Noble answering questions and talking about, you know, what it was like being around the Mets for the last, at that point, about 40 years. And it was just amazing because the, the, this guy knew stuff that nobody else knew. And he knew Seaver like nobody else knew. And, and the reason I say I, I felt bad, not, not because of that night, but when Rusty Staub died one year ago tomorrow – remember like a couple of days later, Marty Noble, you know, published the most beautiful remembrance on Mets.com of, of Staub. And it was so detailed and so many different stories, not just the things that, you know, I could tell you or that, you know, the guy, you know, a beat guy from 
today could tell you just because maybe they remembered him as a fan or or they have done some research. I mean, Marty Noble lived these stories. I mean, the, the, thing, the other thing I recommend besides the Murray Chass piece is um, Jared Diamond and Mike Vorkanov uh, published this letter. I can't remember what it's called, but I think on their Twitter feeds there are links to it. The thing where they talk to other journalists and other members of the Baseball Writers Association, there's like a little Q&A as part of it. And most of it is perfectly fine. It's, you know, usually other writers haven't been around as long as Marty Noble. Marty Noble, and I, I think perhaps he knew, I, I get the sense that he kind of knew that this was coming, so he, there were certain things he wanted to get on the record. He did like, a, they said it was like a 4,000-word answer to about, you know, four or five questions about how did you get started in the business, what are some of your memories. And it is just a tour de force of what it was like to cover baseball from the 1970s to the 2010s, and there's all kinds of great stories about Bob Gibson and Joe Torrey and Don Zimmer and Whitey Ford and this amazing story, if, if you're a journalism junkie, uh, about like one, of, one of Marty Noble's like pride and joy moments in baseball was that he had a scoop that Dallas Green was ready to switch out uh, at first base, put Bobby Vinny in in 1995 and sit Rico Brogan in spring training, which if you think about it, here we are 25 years later, almost you know, the, the, the proverbial who cares. Like this is something that because uh, Benilla got injured uh, or, or Brogan got injured and then recovered and Benilla went to play third, like it, it never came to pass, this, this great positional switch. And, and even then, like who cares other than in the moment? But it was such a great story of the lengths he went to to confirm that this was going on because Dallas Green, for whatever reason, was being very secretive about it. And, and Noble put all his reporter wits to it, beat everybody to the story, and that it gave him such nachos, as they say in Yiddish, that you know, he, he had this. He had the story cold, and that he cared that much about baseball. Uh, I, I would add as, as, as one more, uh, I don't want to call it homework assignment, but as, as one more uh, piece of evidence, uh, Tyler Kepner of the New York Times on his Twitter feed last Sunday in, in the wake of the news here, uh, published uh, pictures of a few pages from the Baseball Writers' Dinner uh, this past winter, where you know they have a program that's kind of a big deal and Noble edited uh, for the last many years. And again, because I think that uh, Noble knew that his time was coming, uh, did this long thing. It was basically you know, one of those, those three-dot specials, a lot of ellipses, of why I love baseball. And it went on for pages of a sentence or, uh, or two, and it's just, you, know, you, you just want to take a bath in it. <laughs> just, uh, he, the guy just so appreciated baseball. He, he communicated it so well. Uh, we as fans, especially in the New York area, if we read Newsday or The Record, certainly when uh, he went to MLB.com, when he had a little more latitude as a columnist, uh, we, we all benefited from it. So um, I know you asked for the last word, and I've given you a few, a few more than, than one. But uh, really, it's it's a loss, and you know he was seventy, so you know it wasn't exactly a shock. And I don't know what his health was. Uh, it, it wasn't one of those public things that uh, people were talking about. Maybe his his peers knew about it, but uh, you know, in a way, he was peerless. So um, I just wanted wanted to uh, to remember him, and I guess it's I, I hate to say stuff like this, but it, it was fitting that I. I he he was in sad spring training. Uh, he was in St. Lucie. Uh, I know he wasn't at, at a game when he died, but you know he had been to the ballpark. Um, this is what the guy lives for. 
and uh, just you know a real real jewel to anybody who you know we we like to say at Faith and Fear you know for 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 baseball for Mets fans who like to read well you know I like to read and I know a lot of, a lot of people do when it comes to the Mets and baseball you know do yourself a favor find find those things I talked about uh, just you know Google Marty Noble go into your uh, you know if you have newspapers dot com or Whatever I mean, some some MLB.com stuff doesn't seem to be there anymore, but a lot of it is. So uh, he just cared so much about the, the institution of baseball, and and all the and at the same time was 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 plenty cynical and uh, you know held everybody's feet to the fire. And uh, you know if if you ever read Worst Team Money Could Buy uh, by Clappish and Harper, who were his you know rivals on the beat. They didn't have the nicest things to say about him. I mean, I, I don't know that it was personal as much as it was, you know, the, the golden age or at least the latter stages of the golden age of, of tabloid competition. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, I mean, Bob, Bob Clappish was the, was the one who broke the news and, you know, I, he certainly didn't do it with any relish. So I, I think, you know, these guys are all kind of a fraternity after a while. But, um, I don't know, he was one of a kind. And uh, although I, you know, like I said, I met him a couple of times and had that one great night where he spoke to our group uh, nine years ago, uh, I just feel it's that somebody who was reading about baseball a personal loss. So, um, you know, rest in peace, Marty Noble. Well said, Greg. Sam, last word from you. And, and uh, we really appreciate you mentioning it, too, uh, as well. And it's a great loss, and I always enjoyed his writing as well. So thank you, Greg. Um, I uh, I have to say the right stuff. You know, there, there was a lot on the field that came together today. But something that I was thinking about when I was looking into that that dugout was David Wright's not there. And it's the first... And, you know, generally speaking, I I think he might have not been there actually in the dugout last year. But generally speaking, I mean, even when David Wright wasn't performing on the field, David Wright was in the dugout being being the captain for this team. And, you know, I really wouldn't mind if David Wright's main goal, uh, main, main role right now was just, you know, number one cheerleader for everybody. I mean, can we have our captain out there? Uh, one way or the other, I'm going to miss him. It, it's it's too bad he can't finish what would have been a Hall of Fame career. Uh, but uh, there's a part of me that, that thinks, like, well, why can't he still be a part of this team uh, in that dugout? Obviously, other people, he, you know, I, I, when thinking about David Wright, I don't think, like, David Wright would take the shine away from anybody else who needs to, to become that role. I I. I think that they probably are also missing him, you know, and, and that, that's, that's something that I thought about today is the fact that David Wright uh, is no longer a part of the, the on the field Mets and um, it's too bad. Good sentiment there. And my last word for today is uh, Saturday. And the reason Saturday is probably obvious. That's the next game. I'm excited. I want to see another Mets game and I have to wait. Uh, what is now about, uh, let's see, 36 hours to do that, maybe a little more than that. So it's 1 o'clock Saturday. So, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure celebrating the unofficial holiday of opening day with you. Uh, it's been great talking baseball with you, and we'll do it again really soon on the Metsian podcast, Sam Rich and Mike. And, Sam, I'll ask you to lead us in our um, 
what we say is the only way to end these podcasts. So, Sam, why don't you why don't you lead us in the charge here? Only way to end these podcasts is always let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Good night, everybody. Good night, Good night everybody. Man. Thanks, Greg. Good night. Bye now. Bye bye.